Welcome to Navigating the New Normal, Grant Thornton's podcast exploring trends in business and the marketplace. I'm Rebecca Archer, and today I'm excited to bring you a special federal budget edition of our series. You'll hear from the speakers of our federal budget virtual seminar, journalist Hugh Rimminton, chief economist Bessa Dedda, as well as Paul Gooley, partner and national head of corporate finance, who discussed the budget spending and how the allocations will impact Australian businesses. So, what has been delivered and how will these decisions and spending impact Australian businesses, both from a tax perspective and more broadly? Hello and welcome to this uh, federal budget virtual seminar from Grant Thornton as we uh, go through the numbers and have a look at the political implications, the implications uh, for business, for your business, from what we saw from the Treasurer Jim Chalmers in his first budget last night. Uh, May I start by acknowledging the uh, traditional custodians of the land of uh, wherever we meet today throughout Australia, the connections of those traditional custodians to land, sea and community, and we pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that to any uh, Torres Strait and Aboriginal uh, peoples who are watching us today. So let's uh, start with who we've got on the panel. I'm Hugh Rimminson. I'm National Affairs Editor with the 10 Network, formerly Political Editor for the 10 Network. I've been covering some budgets uh, for a, a good many years now. I'm joined by people far more expert than me though, Bessa Dedder, uh, to my right is uh, Westpac's uh, Business Bank Chief Economist, and uh, prior to that, the Chief Economist at St George Bank since 2008, and before that, uh, with uh, the Commonwealth Bank in senior roles for many years. Uh, Bess is also the Secretary of the Australian Business Economist Association, and you'll see her regularly in the media. And to my left, Paul Gooley, who leads Grant Thornton's National Corporate Finance Practice and is head of the financial advisory team here in Sydney, specialising in advising clients on mergers and acquisitions, fundraising and divestments across a range of industries and markets. Let me give you just a quick uh, political view of the budget that we saw last night, what the government is trying to do. And we've got to remember this is the first budget of a new government. You only get one first one when a new government comes in. And in some ways, it's useful to go back to the last first budget of a new government. And that was the Joe Hockey budget of 2014 in the government led by Tony Abbott. Because what happened then informs what's happening now. When the Abbott government came in, it promised no surprises and no excuses, but set about trying to deal with what Tony Abbott had famously called the debt and deficit disaster. And so in that 2014 budget, Joe Hockey produced a whole bunch of things that people did not expect, including higher taxes on the high income earners for a budget repair levy and also co-payments on Medicare and a whole bunch of other things. And it sank like a stone. It effectively destroyed the Abbott government uh, in that first budget in 2014. Of course, one of the people watching that was Anthony Albanese. He's been in Parliament for a very long time, and he has spoken publicly about wanting to be a two-term at least government. He has spoken privately to those in caucuses saying that Labor needs to be in office for three terms. He has looked at the experience of that Abbott hockey first budget. He is determined to deliver no surprises. And so what we've seen overnight is a budget that is essentially free of surprises. It, it may not get anywhere near the amount of work that the country needs done uh, to fix budget repair, but what it does do 
is it's seen Jim Chalmers address a bunch of election promises that they had to uh, get to, particularly regarding things like childcare. There's been an extension in pay parental leave, limited in scope. Uh, there are also some other fundings around housing affordability and social housing. Uh, they've gone and kicked out $22 billion worth of coalition infrastructure spending. Uh, so this is all in keeping with the sorts of things that they said that they were going to do before the election. But the budget, in terms of its overall economic parameters, shows there are great difficulties ahead. And uh, the structural deficit is substantial and growing. Uh, the two key fastest growing elements are interest on debt, uh, the, the servicing of that, of that interest, uh, that is the fastest rising element of the budget, major element of the budget. And the other one is the NDIS, which is frankly blowing out. At its current rate of growth, 14% per year, that will be a $100 billion plus impost to the budget every year within 10 years unless something happens. So there is an enormous amount of work still to be done by this government or future governments to rein in spending, to get our budget back under control. And it happens at a difficult time in the world because as we know, inflation is high, interest rates are high, people are feeling pressure in their household budgets, they're gonna feel more of that uh, over the next uh, months and, and year. Uh, real wages remain down in the short term and uh, this has political implications plainly for the government and what it might want to do. So there's an overview, uh, I guess, to what this budget involves. Since the Albanese government got in, it's had a pretty good run. It's remained popular, hasn't really put a foot wrong, uh, but the real work of the Albanese government started last night and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Let me bring in Besser. Uh, what did you make of it? I'd agree with those sentiments, Hugh. I think that uh, Jim Chalmers delivered on a lot of his promises. Uh, there were very few surprises in the budget. And I wonder if that's about building trust, building goodwill uh, with the Australian public. He didn't veer away from the ugly truth, with, which is the structural budget. Uh, and really to highlight that, um, over the medium term, that structural deficit um, from 2025, 26 gets stuck and is quite sticky around 2% of GDP. And as you say, um, is being driven higher by the interest debt bill, uh, NDIS, as well as other spending on social services uh, like aged care, um, health, and as well as defence. Those pressures are very real. Uh, and in, in laying down the federal budget, um, I think Jim Chalmers took the view, well, perhaps if we build that trust and good, goodwill, um, then that lays the groundwork for possible future reform to address um, the budget repair. Uh, I guess uh, it's always tempting for a treasurer, I think, maybe to try and spend some of the windfall. Uh, and there was a windfall thanks to the bigger nominal economy. Commodity prices up, unemployment lower than anticipated, um, uh, and uh, inflation also high, and that's improved the tax intake and helped deliver a better bot bottom line. But a lot of the improvement in the budget bottom line is in the near term. Uh, it's banked up front. Uh, and then as you move further out, uh, that's when you really see the cost pressures start to drive higher. It's even worse than they were predicting, you know, six months ago in the in the budget update that comes immediately before the, uh, the federal election. That's right. And, and I think it comes back to 
I think Charm has been quite open around those, cha those challenges around the structural deficit. Um, Charm is also, is also looking to a cost of living crisis for many households. Um, so it was tempting, I think, to spend some of that windfall. But of course, if he spends that windfall, uh, that can then stoke inflation. So what we saw was that the spending was very targeted and focused around that cost of living package, $7.5 billion, um, focusing on that paid parental leave scheme expansion, uh, the childcare, the more affordable housing, uh, making medicines cheaper and trying to get wages growth going. Uh, so it was very targeted, which minimises the impact on inflation. And like the Reserve Bank, uh, the federal government believes that the inflation rate will peak at 7.75% this December quarter before improving uh, over uh, the later years. Now, the federal government has inflation returning to the target ban a lot sooner uh, than the Reserve Bank or rather to the middle of the ban, a lot sooner than the Reserve Bank and a lot sooner than what we think. And in fact, um, on some of their economic variables, even though they downgraded the outlook uh, in the near term, um, beyond two years, they've got key economic variables like GDP, unemployment, inflation, all moving back to the long run averages. And it's questionable if that's going to happen, particularly in an environment where inflation is high and sticky, uh, global the global economy is turning down. Uh, many major economies uh, face possible recession, including our own, um, over next year, and there are clouds of uncertainty. So um, that 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 bit of you know the out years is also quite questionable. I think in the budget papers, he says that uh, of the significant risks, uh, one is that uh, there will be a stronger pullback in consumer sentiment because of the very pressures that you're talking about. And uh, the unspoken element of that is, is that we will head not to 1.5% growth, which is what's in the budget, but perhaps something with a minus in front of it. Uh, is that a fear that so much comes down to it now to sentiment, uh, that, that if the levers have been pushed too much, particularly just in households, that we could see consumers reacting in a way that then has a self-propagating effect? Well, certainly uh, the path of consumer spending will dictate heavily the path of economic growth. We think growth next year will be weaker than what the federal government is expecting, uh, but we're not, we're not calling for a contraction uh, over the financial year or the calendar year. Um, what I would say is that when we're asked to complete consumer sentiment surveys, we tick the boxes that we're incredibly pessimistic and we feel downbeat about the outlook, but we're still spending. Um, in fact, you know, consumer spending data shows that uh, retail spending has remained very resilient, particularly on areas of services like uh, travel, cafes, restaurants, um, hospitality, all of which are largely discretionary areas. So we would have expected to see a little bit of a slowdown start to come through to consumer consumer spending growth, particularly with the Reserve Bank already having raised the cash rate from 0.1% to 2.6%. Um, that's the most aggressive um, tightening we've seen since inflation targeting was introduced. Uh, but the resilience is still there. Uh, but we do anticipate that that slowing will come because the RBA does have more work to do in raising the cash rate and bringing inflation down. But I think the RBA is very aware that monetary policy has lags. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it was one of the first major central banks to pivot. So instead of delivering another 50 basis points earlier this month, it pivoted to 25 
basis points. Um, the market thinks, well, that possibly is too early uh, because what then has transpired is the market believes that peak in the cash rate will occur later next year, uh, uh, which, which means they've got more tightening that's stretched out over a longer period of time to I do. The budget papers indicate an expectation that the Reserve Bank will go to 3.35%. Do you think that's realistic? Some banks are predicting, some bank economists are predicting higher levels, there's some that are lower. Yeah, so the range among economists in the latest survey that's available um, sits between 2.85% uh, and as high as just a little bit over 4%. Um, if we have a look at interest rate markets that are reflected from 30-day cash rate futures, they're suggesting the peak will be 4.4%. Um, so economists are more conservative than the market. Uh, look, the, the economists haven't veered too far away from the neutral cash rate. Um, so the RBA has suggested that the neutral cash rate is around 3.5%. What's the neutral cash rate? A good way to think of it is that level of the cash rate that's not tapping on the accelerator in the economy, it's not tapping on the brakes. Uh, and so you can see that 3.35% level is not too far from that. Um, our view is that it'll be 3.65% in the first half of next year. What do you make of the revelations in the budget that the power, the price of electricity is up 20% this year, another 30% next year, the compound effect being 56%. That flows through everything in the economy and adds to inflation. I think in this year it's 0.75%, next year 1% of the entire inflationary input is a consequence of these uh, gas prices. This and, and electricity prices in general, I mean, this is a major problem for the economy, isn't it not? Yeah, elevated prices are no doubt a challenge for the economy. And we know that when inflation's above the target band or it's elevated, it's hard to bring it back down. Um, I liken it to toothpaste out of the tube it's difficult to get it back in. Uh, and so that is a real challenge for policymakers. Uh, and to Jim Chalmers' credit, he didn't stoke uh, that, 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 that um, inflationary pressure um, through spending big, but, you know, through ensuring that the spending was very targeted. Um, the risk, I think, is to the upside for inflation. The risk is that the RBA might need to do more. Uh, and the risk is that inflation will be higher for longer, uh, which gets back to my earlier point that I don't think inflation will get back into the band as quick as what the federal government is betting on. Um, we've also got an Australian dollar that is down around 62 US cents. It's also fallen in trade-weighted terms, which is um, a measure of the Aussie dollar against the currencies of those economies we do the most trade with. And so imported inflation is likely to be higher than what the RBA anticipated just a few months ago. Uh, and that'll also fit, feed through to overall inflation. And one of the reasons the Aussie dollar's down around these levels is because the RBA pivoted, but the Federal Reserve hasn't. The Federal Reserve has still kept going with 75 basis point rate hikes and is expected to do so again uh, next month when they meet. There is the long-term question, in fact, a whole series of long-term questions about that structural difficulty that exists in the national accounts. Um, put simply, we either have to save a lot of money from somewhere or we have to tax, build up our tax revenues from somewhere. Uh, what is your expectation as to where the government will turn and what do you think are the most obvious things that they're going to do to try to correct what's now a, a genuine threat to the economic well-being of the country? 
Yeah, look, it's difficult. And, you know, the Henry Tax Review was done in 2010 and it seems like a lifetime ago, but there are a lot of good recommendations in that review, a lot of which weren't taken up. Um, so I expect perhaps um, that review might be maybe dusted off a little um, and looked at a bit more closely. Um, the government has put in more realistic productivity growth forecasts. Um, so they've downgraded from the 10-year average to around the 20-year average for productivity growth. So we've got a more realistic, I think, picture of what the structural budget might look like over the medium term and long term. Uh, and like I said, I do think that they are looking at possible reform, including tax reform, and that they'll need to do that, I think, in order to really, uh, I guess, eat into repairing that structural budget, so, which is a so, real challenge. I mean, I mean, there's no one silver bullet that's going to fix up tax reform. But if they were looking at stuff, obviously Bill Shorten went to the election in, in 2019 for Labor with a whole bunch of, of tax reforms. Uh, the voters didn't like it. They kicked it out. So um, are there obvious ones? We talk about low-hanging fruit. Are there any low-hanging fruit? It's hard to see any low-hanging fruit. And, you know, recall with the GST, that wasn't accepted very early on when it was introduced. And and then uh, the next government, you know, tried it again and it sort of went through. Um, look, as an economist, we do prefer the GST to be expanded, um, so to include all goods and services, and for lower income households to be compensated for that, and the GST to be raised. That's an obvious one, uh, and that seems to be um, a cleaner one, but whether they go down that track, and certainly there's been no hint of that, um, remains to be seen. We hear from, James, uh, uh, from uh, Jim Chalmers that uh, he has, there's a present tense, uh, you always look for the present tense, they have no proposals to change the legislated stage three tax cuts. Uh, of course, you get a new proposal tomorrow to change them and that's the nature of politics. But right now, no proposals to change them. Uh, but the only undertaking he would give last night was uh, there will be tax cuts on the legislated time frame. And there's wriggle room there for him to produce something else, some other tax cuts in that legislative time frame, which don't go as far as, as what has been legislated and promised. Uh, do you think that's a likely sort of off-ramp for him? Look, our view is that the stage three tax cuts won't be scrapped, but they will be tinkered at, particularly for particularly at the high end, um, it will be pared back in some way um, because it costs a lot. But uh, one thing is that Australia does have um, a, a very big over-reliance on income tax relative to consumption tax, particularly compared to other major economies around the world. Um, and one of the things that the Stage 3 tax cuts can do is inch a little bit closer to relying a little bit more on consumption tax, which would be a slightly better balance. Um, so um, from that perspective, um, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm in favour of not scrapping it completely, but can understand that they might choose to tamper, tinker with it at the edges. And just finally, I guess any changes, a lot now depends on what the opposition does and what the tone of the opposition is between now and really leading up to the next election because they'll have to, for these long-term difficulties, uh, it's not going to happen in one term of government. It's going to go over a long period. Um, you know, Peter Dutton is also new to the role of opposition leader. He has a reputation as a hard man in politics. Um, 
and yet the initial signals were that there might be uh, a willingness on the coalition to look at things like, for example, some sort of updated windfall profits tax in the resources industry, that there might be some bipartisanship about looking at NDIS and the blowout there. In other words, there might be some cooperative approaches rather than just a simple you know, combative approach we've seen so much of. Um, how important do you think it is for Australia to resolve these questions, these deep budgetary questions, that there is a um, uh, you know constructive approach in the parliament across the parliament. Well, as you say, um, you know the combative approach hasn't really helped us uh, in the last decade, um, and as we can see, the structural budget. Uh, issue and the large challenge that faces us, I think, is testament to that. So I think if there can be more of a collaborative approach, particularly around the really important productive reforms, I think that would be a massive tick for Australia's future and, and I hope that comes to materialise you. Okay, fantastic. Besideta, thank you so much. Uh, can I bring in uh, Paul uh, Gooley now? Um, from your perspective, what did you make of it, just as a, as a sort of top-down view? Yeah, I think you... you um uh, were correct in the sense that it was a, really it's a plan for the next three years. It wasn't there wasn't anything in there wasn't much new. There wasn't anything really that's going to transform business conditions um, in the interim period. Obviously, there's a, a budget next May, and 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 some of the reforms that may go through um, will come come to light there. But there was nothing in the budget that really is going to to change business confidence levels dramatically uh, at present. Clearly, we've still got. Labor shortages. We've still got, you know, supply shortages in certain areas, um, and business business conditions, though, are you know, per the, the recent surveys, are very still fairly buoyant, um, along with consumer spending, as Bessa mentioned. Um, but business confidence is low, and and that's really looking forward in terms of what's going to happen 23-24. It's a curious thing, isn't it? That as you say, there's um, business confidence is not great, but the business activity is reasonably good. Yes, and I, and I think some of that's coming back out of out of COVID, and um, and as as Bessa said, consumers are still spending. There is still um, stability, I guess, in in markets, although um, obviously equity markets have come off their highs. But there's still a lot of stability there. I think the the most important thing budget for for businesses in this budget was that there was it it was responsible. They did return. The money that's come through this, um, through the commodity price increases, they did return it to the budget. So we're not going to see um, initial inflationary issues. We're not going to see a UK style um, hit hit to our capital markets, which I think business would have been very happy with. If that had occurred, then obviously the conditions would have um, would have been quite difficult for business. So I think that's a very big positive. Um, but business are looking forward. If you look at some of the estimates in the in the numbers, particularly around company tax, it's 3.2% for next year increase, but a 21.6% decrease in 24, and that points with the GDP number at 1.5%. So some fairly um, it's fairly negative trading conditions for corporates, and and so I think that the corporates would be um, looking at now what are we going to do to get to 23, 24? What can the government help us um, to to improve conditions there? And as you said. Um, there's a big imperative to fix the budget and some of those initiatives may target business and may provide more cost to business. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty for business in relation to how 
Now, 23 and 24 are going to play out. Uh, as you said, a lot of these initiatives are long-term solutions. So there's some very good positives around some of the key issues around labor and supply um, and infrastructure and construction, um, but they are long-term plans. They are not going to resolve um, conditions in the next six to 12 months. Uh, power prices, as you mentioned, is a key um, input for a lot of businesses. There's nothing in the budget that is really going to resolve it. And I mean, a lot of it's outside the control of government. Um, so. Uh, initial thoughts are that, yes, um, good to have stability, good to have a budget that's responsible, um, but nothing here for business apart from some tweaking around the edges that's really going to fundamentally change their trading conditions for the next six to 12 months. Uh, you mentioned that drop-off in expectation of corporate tax revenues. So, and I, I just see that transferring to a whole bunch of boardrooms around the country where I guess a lot of directors and executives of, of companies are looking at going, uh, that they are feeling that themselves, that profitability is going to come under strain, mm. depending on where their exposures are, of course. Um, and uh, in that setting, do you think that there is a risk that, uh, that companies will become too risk averse? Well, definitely um, in businesses we'll be looking forward, particularly around um, the lag that's usually occurring from a, from a drop in interest rates or from a, sorry, an increase in interest rates. So we would usually see these lags to be anywhere from 9 to 12 to 18 months from when the, the, the peak um, uh, conditions start and, then, and when we potentially go into a contraction. Uh, in the, we're not calling a contraction at this stage. Um, so businesses would already be working towards trading conditions and how hard they are going to be. Um, it, it's a little, I guess, a little uncertain, particularly with a budget coming in May of what the government is going to do to try to resolve some of those issues. And, um, and as you said, budget repair is going to require greater taxes. Is that going to come through, through corporates? Part of this budget, some of the savings um, in this budget or some of the additional tax revenue, obviously they, wouldn't, they didn't increase taxes, but they're going very hard on compliance. They're putting a lot of money. There's some fairly big multiplier effects uh, assumed in the budget on tax compliance, both for individuals, but also for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and I think some of the concern on that would be, whilst it's, it's encouraging us to, to recover more taxes and to, and to, to fix the budget in that manner, um, that usually comes with a fair, a fair bit more compliance cost, a fair bit more regulation um, to run small, medium-sized businesses. So um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out um, in, in the market. Um, but I, I think boards definitely will be looking forward to... to deteriorating conditions and and one of the areas obviously that will be a factor and that is how they employ and how they look for labor labor's been very difficult to come by it's still still very there's still a lot of labor shortages around um, and a lot of and and whilst um, I saw the number on on wage growth 2.6 percent in the in the private markets for some time now we have seen wage pressure we have seen good increases going to to um, to our employees in, in businesses um, and you see the RBA minutes I think mentioned there there's some early signs of private wage growth increasing and so we have definitely been seeing that for six to twelve months and that is going to play out um, into the into the labor labor market in the next twelve months as those increases really take take um, take position so I think there is um, some concern for business and and to your point does that increase decrease investment um, there is a lot of investment in this budget but it's very targeted to certain sectors it's not targeted in a broad based manner um, some of the the R&D tax um, incentive schemes were supported again, so that's a very big positive, um, but there's not a lot more there at the moment in relation to you know, innovation, apart from longer term, you know, clean energy innovation, et cetera. 
um, good uh, $50 million for critical minerals um, research, which I guess is a, is a very big positive in terms of our resources of minerals, but there's not a broad base um, support, I guess, for further um, to support business investment. And usually that's where business will will start to, to reduce and that's when conditions, for, particularly on the labour side, may, may start to deteriorate. So for those businesses for whom a primary constraint is skilled uh, people, uh, there are some medium-term solutions in there at TAFE places, yeah. a few more university places, particularly in nursing, teaching, other sort of in-demand professions. Uh, immigration is going to go up again, skilled immigration. Do you, what, what positives do you see there for helping that particular constraint on business? Yeah, definitely one of the main ones that we've seen um, is the immigration, obviously, coming out of back of COVID. So the extra 35,000 places is is, is welcomed. Um, I, I guess, and, and probably more importantly, there's $36 million for um, to, to try to resolve the backlog. Our clients are seeing significant backlogs. I think the days are out in the 80s rather for, for, for visa processing, et cetera. So some of those critical um, staff shortages would be uh, are going to be assisted by this, uh, I guess, focus on the backlog. So there's the frustration of businesses. They see the talent they want. They're trying to get that correct. person across or those people across and, and they just simply can't get it through the bureaucracy. Correct, and we're working in global pools here. And, and also our, our major pools of talent coming from, say, Europe and the US having exactly the same issues. So it's very difficult to relocate people in this market. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a very big po initial positive that we've seen from the budget. We, we are hearing from our business customers that in recent weeks, in the last six weeks, it's just become a little bit easier mm. um, to get in skilled migrants from overseas in terms of the fast tracking of visas. Um, it was much harder earlier on. It's also notable in the federal budget, I think, that for this uh, financial year, there's been quite a big upgrade in net overseas migration forecasts. So it was previously 180,000 and they're now looking um, at uh, 235,000. So that re represents some extra labour supply and the childcare measures, um, that may help the participants participation rate of parents and particularly women's where, you know, the caring role um, on average does fall on. Um, so there were some, I think, um, measures around the edges, I think, to help boost um, labour supply. We're also hearing from our business customers that offshoring is returning. Mm. Uh, and so um, with the economy slowing down, uh, we are expecting the unemployment rate um, to gradually lift, um, still represent a pretty tight labour market over the next 12 months, uh, but the federal government does have a higher unemployment rate than what we're expecting for next year. I mean, one of these things about immigration, it puts more pressure on the housing stock, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's another big focus of this budget. Uh, do you think that, uh, you know, they've got this headline of, a, of a, a million new houses over five years from 2024? It's not quite as great as it sounds because <laughs> a country of this size produces housing, in the normal course of events. However, there are some initiatives in there. Do you see um, benefits there, you know, for business to uh, to take advantage of this new accord uh, that is being trumpeted by the government that is going to deliver uh, more affordable housing around the country? Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely, there's a there's a boost in, in terms of the construction sector there. Um, I guess one of the concerns would be what does that put more pressure on? input um, supplies and also labour in that sector, which has been extremely tight. Um, although we are starting to see some, some um, 
a reduction in, in some of those, particularly on key input prices like steel, et cetera. Uh, we're starting to see a, a softening in those, in those prices. So um, that could cause issues. Um, we have done a lot of work in affordable housing and it is, it is definitely a, a key requirement. And I think the population um, does see that as a key requirement. So um, we would, su would support further investment in there. I think that million dollar um, comment may come back to bite um, Dr. Chalmers. That concerns me a little bit, but um, um, just being knowing how difficult it is. I mean, the, this construction of houses. I think there's there's a, 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 a few initiatives around ten thousand up to about fifty thousand that the government is is going to control, um, and they are still fairly large numbers when you look at what is required to build affordable housing. So um, that is, that is that is a good initiative and and. Something that will, but I think um, the the million dollar, the sorry, the million house initiative is going to be um, obviously difficult to achieve in terms of affordable housing, um, and it will it will potentially place some constraints on on construction. Although we may be going into a cycle where construction may need a bit of a boost, and so we've got the national housing accord. We've also got a lot of the infrastructure, clean technology, clean energy technology, um, that's going to, to to boost investment. So it may come at a good time where the market starts to turn down in terms of um, construction um, and this this will be a, a boost for that so we would see that as a, as a positive I think just on on labor markets as well um, the child care initiative it w w is going to be a positive I guess we have gone post-covid to a very you know, flexible working environment in most firms and this can only improve that ability for flexibility um, uh, it's very important to have you know greater workplace uh, participation particularly around uh, around diversity um, and the paid parental leave as well. Um, Grant Thornton was a very early adopter in 26 weeks. So we're a very big, a big um, proponent of the, the indirect benefits whilst it may provide some short-term cost to business. And we've definitely seen that in our business, the benefits, the indirect benefits of having greater you know, workplace participation, greater retention and development of your workforce um, outweighs the cost to business. So again, very positive announcements around the, the move to 26 weeks. So those initiatives should have some effects. I think the downturn in uh, economic conditions will probably also um, fix the labour shortages as, as Bess has yeah, just mentioned that's... there. I think I think it's going to be a bit, um, probably more economic conditions will will open up the labour market a bit and, and opening borders. Um, but clearly these are longer term initiatives that are important. Uh, the, the TAFE places and the university places, again, they are longer term um, um, skilled benefits to, to, um, to, to employment, uh, but they're not things that are going to really have any effect in, if for business at least, for the next two or three years. Just on the housing thing, Bessa, uh, the Accord, there's, there's more details we need to find out about this. Yeah, I was just going to say it's scant on detail, isn't it, <laughs> But one of the elements which they've gone to is superannuation as being a party to this. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, a lot of people out there are looking at this superannuation balances and they've gone down over the last 12 months. Um, and now there is this view that superannuation is going to become, is going to use the vast amount of money that's there under, uh, you know, under management, somehow or other engaged in this process of producing affordable and social housing. Uh, do you anticipate, how, how do you think that's going to work? Do you anticipate pushback uh, that uh, the old Bill Kelty, who is one of the architects, of course, of the superannuation system, said it has one purpose, and that is to provide the best possible retirement income for the workers of Australia, uh, it's now going to essentially what might be described as a kind of a social engineering, um, you know, general community good. But that that's shifting a little bit the purpose of it. 
There might be some pushback because I would envisage that um, without incentives, the return on building housing, affordable housing, wouldn't perhaps be as great, say, over you know, the medium to long term that the return from a share market or other major asset classes would deliver. So uh, there could be some groans from the industry um, or, in, you know, the institutional investors around that. But there wasn't a lot of detail on how uh, they might be engaging those investors in the accord with government uh, or how they, they might be incentivising um, them to participate. So I imagine that might come down the track. Uh, I think they'll have to incentivise in some way. Uh, otherwise, um, I think there could be, um, you know, groan, groaning from that source. Yes, the argument might be made that it's that it's uh, there's not enough in it for the people who actually hold that money. We saw the disastrous and short-lived Liz Truss prime ministership fall apart in Britain because the government was doing in a fiscal sense what the central bank, the Bank of England was doing in direct opposite. Uh, and one of the things probably that struck me, it worked to the advantage of uh, the Albanese government of Jim Chalmers particularly because he was able to say, look, we don't want to you know, have a look, yeah, folks. Yes. Have a look over there. It's not great. So therefore, he, he was able to put up an argument that essentially no one could dispute. And that is that you can't give money away at a time when you're uh, at the same time trying to, um, uh, you know, constrain uh, the, the economy. Uh, how long do you think that lasts? At what point do you think with all the budgetary pressures, there are also political pressures and political pressures will come to bear, particularly on a Labor government, to look after those at the bottom. At what point does that imperative shift a little bit when the political imperative heading into the next election is going to be to do something for people on the bottom and that there's a risk there at that point that we again lose the discipline that was shown last night? Look, I don't think... Um we, I, I don't think it's going to shift in a real hurry. Uh, one, because it's going to take time for inflation to get back to the band. Um, so the Reserve Bank has to keep tightening rates and we think that'll be a feature of 2023. Uh, we could see rate cuts come in 2024 or 2025. There's certainly people in the market that are forecasting it um, as early as late next year. Uh, but we've still got to get through a lot before, um, you know, we can... Um, see that as transpiring and in particular we need to see concrete signs that inflation is turning around which we we don't yet have in Australia. Uh, so I think um, until you have concrete signs that inflation's coming down and the RBA has finished um, its uh, rate hiking cycle, I don't think monetary policy and fiscal policy can be working in different directions. And I think that was part of Liz Truss's problem, uh, that the levers were working in different directions. Uncertainty and volatility in financial markets is already quite high. It's higher than the average over the last year. It's higher than the average over the last 10 years. Um, we've seen very wide trading ranges in bond markets and currency markets. And so uh, I think the government and the central bank have to be working more closely together and more cognizant of each other's policies. Would you say they're pretty much in sync as a consequence of this? There's a reasonable mesh there? Look, in our budget note last night, uh, we've got a section that says budget winners and in the first paragraph we said it's families and in the next one we said it's the RBA uh, because uh, Jim Chalmers didn't make the RBA's job harder 
in bringing down inflation by keeping spending targeted, but also banking most of the windfall um, back into the budget. In fact, you know, over 90% of the windfall was banked. What are the markets doing? What are the capital markets doing? Overnight, they were pretty stable, actually. I had a look at it after, after the budget. Both currency and, and equity markets, the ASX um, uh, futures, were, were quite steady. And I guess it talks to Bess's comments there where, you know, it was, it was responsible from that perspective. I think the markets would have been spooked if there was large spending that wasn't covered or if those, those savings weren't banked. So I think that, and my perspective, because a lot of this was a setup budget for the you know, May and the longer term plan, and a lot of these are longer term initiatives and, and, um, and election promises. The biggest thing for business here was that we had a, we've got a stable uh, financial markets. We've got stability in terms of the, the outlook from that perspective, at least until until the May budget. So, and, and to be honest, I think as we're seeing, business are looking forward at potentially deteriorating conditions. So, the last thing they would have needed was instability in in markets. Funding costs are still very low uh, comparatively, so uh, they will obviously increase, but we're not seeing major issues on debt markets at the moment. Equity markets are obviously substantially down from their, from their peaks, but ha- have stabilised since, since uh, the last few months. So the markets, I think, will take this in their stride and we'll be really looking at, I think the international scene is probably more important for international markets at the moment. You see what's happening in Europe and the US and the, and the tightening cycles and uh, inflation seems to be accelerating rather than de-accelerating. So I think that's a concern that that will affect our our markets here, obviously, will get inflation through potential imports through the through the dollar. Um, particularly if the US keep tightening like this, you know, the, the dollar could keep going down, and that's going to be quite difficult on the import side. Obviously, it'll help our exports. So, so I, I think the markets, yeah, we'll look at this as expected. This is what we expected, and let's get on to looking at how we're going to keep trading. What's the outlooks, and and particularly what's going to happen in international markets. So it's consistent, I guess, with uh, Jim Sharma's comment that it's responsible and that uh, no surprises, I guess, that, that we're in there. Let's take a few questions which are uh, coming in uh, to us. Uh, one question is, do you think there's enough in the budget to incentivize innovation within businesses? Perhaps, Paul. Well, I so said there is support in the budget papers for the R&D tax incentive, which is one of the main um, attributes of, of innovation. So I guess that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a positive. There is money, I think it's a billion dollars for sovereign manufacturing. Um, not, I'm not sure there's a lot of detail there yet on how that's going to occur, but um, there, is, there is some incentives there. Um, but overall, I think you know, the, the, the incentives in the budget for innovation you know, haven't really been fleshed out yet. I think that's part of probably what we're going to see in May. Um, and at the moment, I guess it's probably more around trading conditions. So we haven't seen a lot of additional in incentives. Um, clearly, there's a bit more compliance, um, particularly around international businesses as well. Um, so I think, I guess, a lot of the innovation um, has been focused probably more on the, the clean clean energy um, side. So pools of money there for, for research and development and, and some initiatives in that space. Um, but the broader business, I think, innovation side and the tax incentive side is pretty much Hasn't, hasn't really been changed. There's a lot of money going in, as you'd expect. This is a huge structural transition to the, uh, I think it's $20 billion for the rewiring of the nation, that, that, that transition. Um, there's got to be business opportunities there. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think we would have expected on the EV side that the funding for charging, we're definitely seeing state governments starting to ramp up funding for charging. So we're seeing that. There's solar batteries for housing and storage and solar panels for housing. So I think those are all all positives. But the real spending, and again, these are long-term plans. So And they may have some immediate um, well, they, they won't resolve power pricing. So that 56% compounded price increases, these initiatives obviously can't do much about those now. I guess the, the plan is to obviously build the infrastructure so that we can get more renewables online um, and, and be cheaper. Um, but there is an enormous amount of investment. So I guess from a business perspective that's facing that investment, there's some very large opportunities, particularly around you know, the, on the construction side um, and in the, on, the, on the retail side. Um, there, there is as well. So I, th- I think those are all very, very positive, um, but they are longer term investments um, in trying to, to reduce power prices. And um, I think that that's going to be a, a major issue for businesses and, and something that the government doesn't really have a lot of levers to control, particularly in the short to medium term. A question here regarding freight costs being on the rise. There's extra pressure on importers and exporters. Will the budget help alleviate those costs for those businesses. Did you see anything there, Besser, that would... Uh, Well, in terms of um, freight prices, they've actually been coming down. Um, So when we look at a range of global shipping prices, uh, they've certainly come down a long way from their peak. Um, You know, I think uh, the shipping companies have become a lot smarter uh, at, I guess, anticipating uh, what demand will be and matching that with capacity. Uh, So I think that shipping prices, while they might have a little bit more room to fall, we may actually not see those prices return to pre-pandemic levels because the shipping companies have become savvier and they might want to protect a bit of a wider margin, particularly in Australia where shipping lines collapse to three companies. Um, So we are seeing that flow through. We are hearing from our business customers that it is a bit easier to get um, supply, supply of materials in, uh, the delivery times have improved. I'm not saying they still don't have to order well in advance, uh, but it's certainly a lot better than when it was late last year. Also, what the data is showing and what we're hearing from our customers is that because they've been ordering really early just in case they can't get it on time or just in case it's not available when they need it, um, stock at warehouses is really full. Uh, and, in fact, in the wholesale trade industry, it's just off a record high in terms of the amount of inventories. So one of the questions I have in my mind is, well, if consumer spending slows too fast um, and you know, global supply chain disruptions keep improving as global consumers move away from spending on goods, which is what we did during COVID, and back to services, and we're certainly doing that. We're taking our holidays overseas and eating at the cafes and restaurants and taking advantage of our our freedom post-COVID, then will they have to discount that stock to move it? It's a very good point. And it's that inflection point. Well, it's a good point. Our our clients are definitely seeing very high stock levels um, and are also seeing capacity in the freight system. So, And I think a lot of that is coming into Christmas. A lot of people have stocked up and so there is free capacity and and, and freight costs are down substantially. If you look at the container prices, they are down substantially. So I think that is a a large risk. If consumer consumer spending continues to hold up, um, it'd be hard to to talk down consumer spending given how resilient it's been over many periods. But um, 
Um, it is, but you would expect that's got to it's got to reverse at some stage. That sort of six to nine month lag usually plays out. So, if if that does eventuate, I agree there will be stock, there will be some discounting, particularly the, the February March period. Again, is usually difficult for retailers. We could see that again with large stocks and 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 large discounting that's going to have to occur. And these interest rate rates will have to at some stage play out um, into consumer spending. Um, yeah, we think they'll bite much more over next year, particularly with um, 66% of households that have a fixed home loan rate, they'll be rolling off by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so increasingly, as we move through the rest of this year, next year, you're going to have more households rolling off fixed home loans onto these higher variable um, rate loans. Uh, and also the RBA has more work to do. We think they'll need to take the cash rate to possibly as high as 3.65%. But as I said earlier, there's an agreement among markets. Well, there's a consensus among markets and financial markets that there is more to do. It's just how much more does the RBA need to do is the question. Well, the fact which struck me as I, I went to the news conference with Alan Joyce recently in which he was announcing this uh, return to larger profit than was expected. And that was essentially being driven by the, you know, the factors that you talk about, that people have come out of the pandemic and they really want to travel. They want to travel for their own personal growth. But there's also a lot of pent-up family travel where people haven't seen grandkids haven't seen, you know, we're a migrant nation. There are people who, want, who feel as if they need to make reconnections with families. But that's ex- incredibly expensive, hence the profits for the airlines at the moment. And that itself absorbs and takes out of people's capacity to discretionarily spend, I would have thought, if you're spending a lot of money to go back to yeah, home Yeah, but countries. what I would also say is if we have a look at our short-term arrivals, they're turning up much more uh, higher, you know, sharply higher, same with students, um, same with immigration. Um, Those numbers are all recovering. I've just returned um, from Europe and the number one message I got from Europe was the tourist season started earlier. It was a lot bigger than what they'd seen in a really long time and it hadn't yet finished when normally it would have been finished by by around mid-late September and, and it had it. And I do wonder, well, we're now heading into... Uh, summer here in Australia, um, and that pent-up demand around the world, I think some of that will flow over into Australia and those tourists will be spending money and that could support some of the consumer spending or at least um, provide a little bit more resilience to the consumer spending growth outlook in the short term. One of the other known unknowns, I guess, if I can use that old phrase, that uh, Jim Chalmers pointed to was uh, the cost of uh, weather-related events. So the budget contained this $3 billion, uh, which I, I presume they shoehorned into the budget in quite the recent past, in the lead-up to the budget, uh, bearing in mind what's happening in the Riverina flooding and other parts of, uh, of New South Wales as well. Um, obviously, that money is involved in a lot of recovery, a lot of infrastructure. There's a lot of roads and bridges that have been washed out and damaged. Uh, for business, even as the government winds back on those coalition-promised infrastructure, particularly regional infrastructure uh, projects. Are there other opportunities, do you think, that um, emerge from the, the, the fact of these weather-related events? Yeah, well, obviously you can't predict the weather-related events, but um, clearly 
clearly the construction sector, um, particularly the civil construction sector, will will have work to do um, in in those, particularly in, in in those regions. So um, it is notable that there was a lot of money um, shifted in the budget in terms of um, those uh, the, the former coalition grants. I guess a lot of it was actually water related, which is interesting. And I guess we have we don't have a shortage of water issue at the moment. So a lot of those projects have been either moved or or shelved, um, and a lot of them were regional. Um, but but again, the, the spending has gone, I guess, from, a, from an overall perspective, the spending has just been shifted into things like this and, and other areas. So um, there, there, there'll be some short-term benefits to, to some construction companies, I would have thought, through that. Um, but I guess the other side to that is the inflationary pressures of, of, um, of groceries, et cetera. Will that have a material effect on, on inflation, et cetera? That's probably a, a wider discussion, but there will be a short-term hit. Um, I mean, the weather is interesting. We've obviously gone through the, the La Nina. I think uh, there was some data out yesterday to say that might continue for a few more months, but you would expect if things play out that, that, that we may go into a drier period as, as a custom and therefore um, they'll have different challenges. But, um, but at least I guess some of these construction costs or these construction spends will, will prop up some of, some of the industry, I guess, as we talked about, potentially downturn into 23-24. One of the things which uh, the government made much of was its uh, crackdown on multinational yes. uh, tax compliance, getting getting tax income out of the multinationals. Uh, the original promise was that would bring in about $1.9 billion. The budget figures show it'll be less than half of that. Mm. So um, does that indicate that uh, that's a bit of a dud? Well, it's always a, it's politically popular, um, and um, obviously anything that can increase tax revenues um, from foreign multinationals is is important from a budget perspective and overall uh, budget perspective. Um, I guess I guess we need to look at the detail, and how some of our tax experts will follow this and have a look at the detail because uh, some of these measures sometimes have a catch all, and so what you don't want to see is foreign investment affected because of the rule changes. Some of them are just really working in sync with the global changes that are occurring and, and, and the requirements to, to tax, uh, get better tax on intangible assets, et cetera, um, to have a look at the thin capitalization rules and, and, uh, and the like. So um, I guess positive in the relation to a generation of more tax revenue. Um, I guess we'll need to look at the detail to make sure that it's not going to be a disincentive for for foreign um, companies to invest in Australia. And, and that's probably the last thing we need if we're going into a bit of a contraction. What's your view on the multinational tax measures? I think that's one of their revenue raising measures. And, you know, they had a raft of measures where, you know, they're trying to raise a bit more revenue and put that towards the, the structural budget repair. It's um, not the, that much, though, is no, it? No, it's not that much, um, but it's a little bit of something. I, I guess what I was thinking um, was that just like uh, the tax intake will be smaller going forward for our government because the nominal economy is shrinking. Uh, so the nominal economy uh, in Australia is set to shrink from 8% this financial year to contract to minus 1% uh, in the following financial year. Um, that's also facing other economies around the world. Uh, company earnings uh, will get tougher. In a global economic environment uh, that has dark clouds over it. Uh, and so uh, that might be uh, part of uh, the reason why some of that tax in intake might have been downgraded given the economic conditions around the world and the earnings prospects uh, for companies in the major economies. We're almost out of time. I'd, I'd be interested to get your view on a couple of, on essentially the key problem. 
And that is that if you look at the five areas which have been nominated by Jim Chalmers, where costs are rising uh, ahead of you know, the, the, the general economy, health and aged care, NDIS, defense, um, the uh, servicing of, of the debt, um, if they, they need to rein that in as much as they can, but they need more income from somewhere or to find other cost savings somewhere else. It's not obvious where those cost savings come from. So what is your sense of it looking now over the next couple of cycles, electoral cycles, what is Australia going to have to do to bring its books back in order? They're going to have to lift productivity reform uh, in order to really address that structural budget issue. We talked about innovation a bit earlier. You know, spending on R&D, spending on innovations really dropped away in Australia relative to other countries. We've, we've dropped in, in terms of our ranking on how well we do for business dynamism. You know, how easy is it for businesses to form? How easy it is for businesses to exit? The red tape, um, you know, it's a very complex issue productivity, but they've really, I guess, got to bite the bullet um, and try and start, I guess, pushing in that reform over the next few years because the issue really starts to grow from 2025, 2026 beyond. Uh, so um, while the issue is still there in the near term, those cost pressures really blow out um, beyond the two years, uh, particularly when the nominal economy starts to shift down a gear and we don't have, you know, higher commodity prices, lower unemployment um, and improving economic growth, delivering um, a revenue windfall to the budget bottom line. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, there's not many levers apart from broad-based, more, more broad-based taxes, which I guess we would support as well, but that's, that can be difficult to implement. Um, there's not much else they can do apart from trying to, to incentivise growth um, and grow, grow our way out of the structural deficit. So, um, again, um, business... Um, does do, does get hampered by the compliance cost. They do get hampered by the regulations, and and um, and so anything that can be done to free that up um, in terms of um, just the day to day compliance, also the, the way they in, in employ people, um, some of the taxes that are involved in that. I mean, um, there's there's a whole raft of I guess initiatives. Some of them are more difficult than others, but um, again, we need to find ways to do that. Um, I do think that part of that budget repair will come through stage three. There's no doubt that 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 will be one of the key parts to, to raise additional capital, additional funds. Um, but they do, we do need to go for, for more fundamental structural reform. I mean, even corporate tax rates, obviously we've, we've had the reduction down for the small businesses to 25%, but clearly we need to be more competitive on that and a whole bunch of, a range of different productivity measures. Um, so um, they are longer term and you probably need a couple of, couple of term government to really push some of that through. Um, but um, in, the, in the short term, um, yeah, I think it's really businesses bunkering down and, and, and seeing how they can, can trade through this and hopefully, you know, the consumers will ret maintain their, their spending and also, as you said, there'll be more, more immigration, more foreign tourists and some of this infrastructure spend will start to spur, um, uh, I guess, better trading conditions for, for some companies. So we've got a short-term short -term slowdown, when I say short-term, short-to-medium-term mm. slowdown. That's in the, in the figures and a lot of work to do in the long term. Uh, it's been really great to talk to you both, Paul Gooley and Bess Adetta. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for joining us. I'm Hugh Remington. Have a great day.
Thank you for listening to our special federal budget edition of Navigating the New Normal. We hope you enjoyed a deep dive into the budget spending and the implications it will have on Australian businesses. My name is Rebecca Archer and if you liked this podcast and would like to hear more from the series, you can subscribe to Navigating the New Normal podcast by Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.